0: Listener production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. Just a warning, this episode deals with baby loss. Now, no dad wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great. But do you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent... Parenting educator, author and champion of Boys and Men. And this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is Brad Kearns. Brad lives his parenting life online where he's known and loved as Dad Mum. He's a husband to Sarah and dad of four boys, including Buddy, Brad, and Sarah's firstborn son, who was born sleeping or stillborn. They also have Knox, who's nine, Finn, who's seven, and Teddy, who's four. Okay, Brad, what happened in your house this morning?
1: I missed it. <laughs> well, That's like
0: one of the best
1: I am um, ever. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I, I was up and I left at uh, five thirty this morning we had some cousins having a sleepover. So I had to go in and, and say to them, don't wake anyone up. You actually shouldn't be out of bed yet. Um, so don't make any noise. Yeah, absolutely. They're all out of bed running into, you nothing know, like slumber a, party. They're running into
0: Nothing like a cousin catch up. Yeah. So Brad, you've gained a level of fame by posting about being a dad and a husband. So why did you decide to share your parenting life in that way?
1: Look, I think for me, it started from a, a post. So tr- I'm I'm quite conservative traditionally, believe it or not. And I had a pretty private and locked up social media profile. When you come from the police and then the army, you you don't share to people outside of your circle. And Sarah went in a hospital, and I put s- what I thought to be a bit of a joke on online. I had to be mum for a day, and I'm going to call myself Dad Mum. That's my superhero name. And yeah, I, I wish I thought of a better name that day, to be honest. But But here we are. So yeah, I I posted something and I said to Sarah, while she was in hospital uh, with kidney issues, I said, you're not going to believe how hard my night was. And she said, mate, I think I'm going to believe it. (laughs) I said, I'm going to write it down for it. No, she goes, Brad, write it down. So I wrote it down and she goes, my friends want to share it, but they can't share it because you're on private. private." So I took myself off private and then, yeah, the next morning I had 50,000 followers and the local news crew wanted to rock up. And I was like, that's... That's weird. So from there I just started posting memes and then to be honest I posted a couple of things right it was more insightful than than funny. Yeah. And yeah I found I I had people just related to it. You know there's that connection and people would message you and say I took a lot out of that. They would never comment. You know some of the probably best things I've written are the lowest engaged posts, but they're the ones that people take the biggest messages from. And you wouldn't know but you know, you get a lot of guys that they'll reach out and say, hey, I really thought on this and it's it's going to change how I how I act tomorrow. And you go, well, that's cool. I'll keep doing that.
0: Those posts where people didn't necessarily comment much, tell me a bit about what what sorts of things were in those
1: posts. I guess there's, there's different types of posts. So what I've learned over the years is don't be accusational when you write something because it'll, it'll come off really poorly and people will feel accused when they get something shared with them. So what I definitely try and do when I write is I I try and articulate a message that a guy will understand that his partner can share with him. (laughs) And for me, that's always been my recipe online is go off the number of shares, not the number of likes or even comments. Because if you can say something that someone else couldn't articulate, then that's how you win.
0: And I think he did that beautifully, particularly around Indoor plants and cushions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So there's the fun. There's the fun <laughs> side, um, but then there's also the more the more serious side. And and what I find is when you when you write something like that and it's it's a safe space for someone and they read it, and this is what happens with the guys they will they'll read it and go, okay, I see. So one one that I wrote, for example, was around whose job is it to keep the relationship going? The spark is it. It's not her job to put on makeup and keep looking good and all the rest of it. It's both your fucking job. Yeah. You know, it, it's up to you to show interest. It's up to you to give her a reason to want to look after herself. And it's not about looking after yourself physically but mentally because the person that looks after themselves mentally, often that will that will also translate into the physical world.
0: You have that ability to offer insights from a very masculine space that we're more honest and deep than when normally out there, it's a bit like what's on TV. Mm. You know, the dads are portrayed yeah. as bumbling bimbos. Who, you yeah. know, we are moving it, but seriously, most of them were. Yeah. And then you stepped into a space where yes, there is humour, but every now and then you just hit a ball out of the park on something that we've all thought about, but we might not have said.
1: People underestimate the emotional intelligence of of guys, yeah. and and I don't think it's anything to do with their level of emotional intelligence. It's to do with how something's articulated or even the safety of articulating it. So they'll connect with something. They'll read it. You, They won't even look sideways and pretend they've acknowledged it, but something's yeah. happened. They've absolutely read it. They've taken it on board and they just haven't felt safe enough to say, yeah. yeah.
0: And also there's this depth that is often completely misunderstood that Guys often like to think about things quite deeply. They're not as quick as women to want to talk about it, but that doesn't mean to say they're not thinking about it and it's actually going to be it's going to be processed and then when it is, yes, in a safe space they will they yeah. will be able to talk about it.
1: Yeah, a- 100%. Generally speaking, especially online and in conversation, women they overshare. Like my wife tells me what she talks to people about at the gym. And I'm like, you've known these people for a week. Yeah. Um, with yeah. guys, you could know them for, for 12 months. And, I and tried 20 years. Or 20 right? years. Yeah, 20
0: years yeah, before you actually. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And it's one of the things I discovered in my research is the whole friendship drama is incredibly complex and fraught and driven by lots of things as a female, particularly estrogen, which is the bonding neurochemical, whereas guys don't have as much of that, right? But their bonding and their friendships are just as significantly important. And so often, you'll ask a guy how many really good mates you have, and they'll go two. And you'll say, "When did you last see them?" And they said, "Oh, about twenty years ago." When did you last connect? Oh, yeah, a while back. But that's it. It doesn't change. Yeah. So isn't that an interesting yeah. shift? That and that's why we often have issues with loneliness for men later in life. How do you describe yourself as a dad?
1: Um, Gee whiz, that's a tough one. I think I try really hard. Like I put conscious effort into things that I know that I'm not good at, you know. Um, Like what? uh, So let's say something like I grew up not doing homework, right? Like I lived in a household where education wasn't valued so highly and and, um, I now have a, a career where I prepare for things and I know how important it is to get on the front foot. Like I prepared this morning to come here and wrote some notes, even though we won't use them. So I think for me, that's that's an example where with the boys, we had like Easter hat parades. For example, <laughs> spent a month with them working on <laughs> Easter hats. We built a friggin' skate park on top yeah. of their helmets. Yeah. Um, and, and I think for me, it's just put effort into things, and it doesn't matter how good you are at it. Um, yeah, and, and the kids will see that. So. It's good enough, Yeah, hey? it's good enough.
0: Still a skate track on a East of bonnet. I think I saved it a bit high.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. We smacked it out of the park. That was that was awesome.
0: So before you had the boys, did you realise you were going to be a dad that was as conscious of the choices you are going to make as a dad?
1: No, no, not at all. Where'd that happen? I think it's happened over time. Like you wouldn't suggest there's a, a switch flicked. It's a case of, it's a competency curve, you know, you're unconsciously incompetent, then you're consciously incompetent. And I think I I got to the point where I was consciously incompetent really quick, Um, (laughs) you know, and I was like, wow, I've I've got to do something about this, you know, for me growing up, you know, I won't talk too much about it, but there's a lot of things that I knew weren't right, you know, so it's a case of, well, how do I use that consciously incompetent for those things and say, well... What do mm-hmm. I got to do? And 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 for me, Sarah's probably been the biggest driving force of that. So,
0: tell me, what did Sarah bring to the table that made everything a bit different
1: for you? So, we met when we were eighteen. Um, I was on my way into the army at the time, and then we met. She was on her way into the police force, and we just hit it off from day one. And I think the reason she's been so influential for me is because we came from two very different upbringings, two very different households, two very different levels of stability, I guess you would call it, and two very different sets of values in terms of family and, and what we perceived our family values to be. So I think when, when, when you take that, for me, I was probably pretty, not probably, I was, I was pretty lost as a young adult and Sarah just had these values that she was not willing to, to give on. You know, she would say things and she would be like, they can't treat you like that. And I'll, I would I would have accepted that. Um, and she would say no. And early days that would have caused fire. So I'd be like, well, I can't stand up to these people because I don't perceive anything to be wrong. Whereas she just had those values where she was like, no, you treat others this way and you expect to be treated this way. So, um, over the years, that stuff's really rubbed mm. off on me. She's very strong in terms of what she will and won't accept from people. She's got really high standards, you know, and sometimes I, I know in our relationship, I've, I've had Either friends or even family at times be like, Oh, she's really hard to deal with. And the longer we've been together and we've stood the test of time, the more I've sort of learned actually, no, she just had standards and you didn't you didn't meet them. And you've got to meet those standards for the other person. Absolutely.
0: Really important thing to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh well done.
0: So we all know the saying, Happy Wife.
1: Happy, happy wife. life. Yep.
0: So is yep. that what he values?
1: Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that I value that every day. <laughs> just different levels.
0: Can you give me what are your main family values that you and Sarah want to make sure your boys have?
1: It probably starts with we plan together, you know, so whatever it is, we'll, we'll sit down and and it's not a conscious or a deliberate thing. We don't have a Sunday sesh where the whole family gets together. We just check in really regularly, make sure we're on the same page because if Sarah and I are driving in different directions, then... You know, it, all hell's going to break loose. So there's probably that. There's planning. Other values would be we we try our best to support everyone in the family for what they like, which is different. You know, like our, our boys are three very different people. I'm a very different person to what Sarah is. So we really value that individuality. We're not just a footy family. We're not just a, a dancing family. We're not um, – everyone's got their own things. So we we do our best to consciously put effort into – what everyone likes and does. And then maybe the last thing is we really try and demonstrate to the boys how we talk and and how we treat people. My friends just bought a house this week. I messaged them and told them how proud I was. Knowing that we're in our 30s, not many other people in their 30s would have done that. That's something you would expect from their parents. But, you know, they actually said to me, Brad, not many people have have reached out to us. They were really thankful for that yeah. message. And we spoke a little bit about it. So I guess it's just about showing the boys that the most important thing for our family is not just to succeed but to see others succeed as well and, and be part of that and enjoy that with them. And, yeah, and I find that, that yeah, goes a mile with the boys. They look at what everyone else does and if someone gets an award, we all congratulate them. We don't, you know, there's there's no benchmarking or comparison. So, yeah, it's a really big value for us.
0: The thing that I think you haven't mentioned that comes across on your platform is the fierce, unconditional love that you have mm. for each other, and that that should be up here, right? Yeah. Right? It's not just, you know, we, we're a team here trying to do this. We're doing it with this underlying crazy thing yeah. that sometimes um, older generations didn't necessarily have that bedrock of, serious unconditional love. We had a very conditional love. Yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit.
1: Really interesting word because I actually wrote that down this morning. Conditional is something that it drives a wedge between people. You know, I know for me, I've got personal relationships where conditional has driven a wedge between us. We've had other parts of the family that maybe we haven't spoken to for periods of time because things felt conditional. And I know a lot of kids really struggle with my parents are interested in what I do conditionally because i'm doing the thing they want me to do so yeah
0: um, get the exam result uh, in the trophy yeah ab- absolutely get the sticker and yeah the they're not interested in me
1: they're interested in the things what
0: i'm doing that makes them
1: yeah you know, yeah. yeah 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 but when w- when something's conditional people generally can see straight through it and you can argue a lot.
0: <laughs> one of the things that i've learnt over the years is that dads aren't always keen to jump on with a great idea that their co-parent has, particularly a woman who's suddenly decided this is what the family needs. So getting a pet is a biggie, right? And I want you to share the rabbit story because you and I know that that was a really significant moment of (laughs) incitement that um, you might not have realised was coming. So tell me about the rabbit story.
1: The thing about being married or you know, in a relationship with a a pretty strong female is that they're just going to do stuff, you know, like, and, and you've got to be prepared for that stuff's just going to happen. You're going to rock up one day and the bed that you just bought is already going to be replaced because actually that wasn't the right one. And we made a bad decision. We being the operative word made a bad decision. Um, and now we've made the decision to fix it. So
0: always aiming higher.
1: Yeah. Always aiming higher. And I think something as a man you've got to understand is that if if she wants a pet and you don't want a pet. Which is 99% of most men initially. Absolutely. Yeah. You're getting a pet and and not only are you going to get a pet, you're going to have to feed it, you're going to have to walk it, and ultimately you're going to have to help look after it because it, it was a family decision. <laughs> and, and, Someone and in the family all, yeah, made the decision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then what happened, because this is the other thing I see all the time, is how much the dad falls in love with the pet that they did not want. We get so many photographs of the unwanted pet mm. now snuggled up on dad's lap, yeah. dad's shoulder, in bed with dad, the one they never wanted. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, well, I think <laughs> you just find yourself on the out with the pet at that point, don't you? So you're <laughs> both out there together in the doghouse and, and all you've got is each other. <laughs> so you've got to just bond
0: so one dad said to me, "Well, there's just one person in the house who loves me the same every day, mm. and I find that
1: that's pretty good." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, <laughs> the the animals don't judge, you know. If if stuff's going bad during the day, if the kids aren't ready in time, it's because something you did the day before that means that they're too tired to get ready <laughs> on time. So that pet. Yeah, yeah, but but at least the pet. The pets consistent, like
0: most predictable creature with love, unconditional. Yeah. Brad, you did face one of the biggest challenges any parent can face. So can you tell us about Buddy?
1: So I would have been, gee whiz, it was 2012, so maybe 22, 23 at the time. I don't think we were ready to be parents as much as you think you are. We'd been married a couple of years and and that's just the stage we're up to is having kids. So we went through everything. We went through, I guess, that pregnancy journey shit scared, right? Like no idea what you're doing. So I went and bought my little Broncos onesie. I did all of those things that you do um, with the baby on the way. And then, yeah, we we got to a point where we, we learned that he wasn't viable. You know, he, he had a word. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, but that's the word. So, so he, he wasn't viable. There was some soft markers. And then after a bit more analysis, after being told we were one in 47,000 chance of having anything wrong. Yeah, it turned out there was some genetic issues there and the soft markers told told them to look. So we, we did the amnio and, yeah, it turned out that there was a whole host of problems. And
0: How far along in the pregnancy was that?
1: Uh, it was 25, 26 weeks, mm. I think. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because at, at the time I thought, you, you don't really understand, especially as a young guy, that how far along that actually is. You're like, oh, okay, but but in reality, it's a that, that's a baby, basically a f- fully formed but small baby, in there. So,
0: so what happened after that?
1: Um, we sort of knew that that things had had gone south. So he, they said, okay, it, we have to basically get him out. I, I don't know if there's mm-hmm. a nicer way to say it. So we have to do that, and Sarah had to be induced, and yeah, we went through through that.
0: Were you aware of the impact of that loss at the time or how did that, because grief is a strange Yeah,
1: No, I don't, I don't think I was, Mm. you know, I don't know where Sarah was at, but I I don't think it's until um, we seen him in the bassinet. I know for me that I really appreciated how far along it was and, and, and and what it meant because to that point it, it was just a couple of scans. You know, it was an ideal. That, that's what it was. So uh, I think it, it hit us that day. And then on, on that particular day, I had to make an outbound call, and it was to a funeral place because the counsellors had told us after 20 weeks there's a birth certificate. It's, it's a pretty formal process. So I had to make that call, and I, I think for me it hit me when I when, when a bloke answered the phone, and, and, and I said, oh, I need to organise a funeral for our son. And it's the first time i would ever said the words our son. Mm as well. So it was, for me, that was probably, that was probably the moment where, where it hit me. But then there's a bit of imposter syndrome as well, because you're like, I'm not a dad. Yeah. Never seen him. So yeah, I, I think that was probably the moment. It was after the fact. And then, yeah, the next probably week, week and a bit was, was a blur because you're, you're organizing a tiny casket and you're, you're writing a speech for someone you never met and, and you're doing all of those things with, you know, the white lady funeral people. And then after that, you go, shit, I'm on two weeks off work. I'm going to go back to work And, and life time marches on. That's, that's it. That, that was, that was the experience. So for me, we got through that. And then it was a case of don't really know what this means. I don't know what I, to be honest, I, I felt like a bit of an imposter because I didn't have a lot of the emotions that I thought I should have had, you know, and you've got people saying, oh, you're you're Sarah's rock, you're this, you're that and the other. And and I'm like, I actually think I'm a bit inept. Like, I don't, I don't really know what the situation is. So it took time. I then got invited to these groups, you know, there's all those amazing organizations like Bears of Hope, you know, they reach out and I got invited to a group. There was a chat group for dads and As bad as it's going to sound at the time, I said, this is just a dad's crying group. I don't want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I I didn't, Mm. some of them had experienced loss of of, of a Mm one-year-old and like, Mm -hmm. I don't belong here. I don't belong in that group. So I pulled back from that stuff really early on and I was like, well, that's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm just not going to.
0: So how did you support Sarah?
1: It's a tough question Yeah, because I don't think you, you don't support people through grand gestures, so it's really hard to put a finger on it and say, well, that's that's the thing that I did.
0: But you were aware that her response was quite different to yours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Com- completely different. You know, she'd she just birthed a, a child and gone through the pregnancy, and to that point, how close we were with Buddy was very different. So I guess for me it was just trying to be as aware as possible around what what she was going through, I could see her developing new friendships with people that had experienced similar things, and that's probably where I, I realised that wow, this is really, it's oh. really important for her that, that she's got that network and and those people. So,
0: had you had any other death experience in your life prior to Buddy? No, no. Can you see you had no,
1: no. nothing to? Yeah, no, no, yeah. no.
0: So this is it. This is yeah, a pragmatic man going done, move on. Yep. Done everything I needed? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But has it ever really impacted you? Like when you were expecting the next one, was there a thought at any point of, gee, I hope this goes okay?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it was. So there was another very early term pregnancy loss as well between Buddy and Knox that yep. I don't think we've really ever spoken about. it was only very early, like first trimester type, type thing. So I think for me it was knowing how on edge Sarah was that, put me on edge. It's that typical, when she's stressed, we're all stressed. So it, it was like that. But I know with, with Knox, we opted to, to maybe get some more tests that might have, yeah. a lot of people advise against it, but we're like, we've been through this. We've yeah. given the numbers and it, yeah. it fucking failed us. Yeah. So we're not going to, we're not going to listen to anyone. Yeah. We're going to get this test again and we're going to do it early and we're going to make a decision early because we're not going to get burnt by this process a second time. So I think to the hospital staff, to the, the midwives and that, we were on edge. You know, we would have been a tough young couple to manage, but I think it's because of that first experience that mm. we were like that. So I think it, it definitely played in into Knox and that pregnancy yeah. a lot.
0: So what was something from that experience that Sarah and yourself thought, we could make it easier for other people who go through this?
1: So originally we did what? I guess what everyone else does when you're supported by an organization, you go, let's try and get some bears donated. And then I think at one stage we volunteered as well and and said, let's go and meet with hospitals. And it's really hard, you know, like you need people and you need money. That's what makes a difference when you look at a charity. You need lots of people and lots of money. A couple of people without a platform having a conversation with their network, it's great, but it doesn't achieve a lot. You know, and I don't want to say it's wasted effort to anyone out there doing it, but it's it's hard. It's yeah. a slog. So you got to take your hat off to the people that do that. I think for us, we sort of realized when we started talking about it online, I would have been online for probably over 12 months before we'd see it, sort of even mentioned it, you know, just paid a little tribute and all these people started reaching out. I think for us, it was a case of we wanted to put his name on something So I released, uh, it was called The Buddy Pack. And the idea was we'll donate to Bears of Hope a percentage of everything we sell, but it's just his legacy. There was a lot of people that were like, we want to support, don't need the product, but how can we support? And so I put something online one day and I said, okay, just on a whim, if I post something, will you commit? And it's the first time I think I'd ever asked for a call to action from our audience. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Are you with me? If I post at seven PM tomorrow, will you share it? And that's all I asked, and people did. They said absolutely, we'll we'll share it. And I remember saying to Sarah that night, I said I've had over a thousand people just on my little Instagram poll say yes, I'll share it. I I believe them, you know, like I believe them. So, sure enough, next day seven PM, put it on Facebook, and I was going out to dinner with a mate, and I posted it at seven o'clock and by half past seven, I'd looked at the post and it had a thousand shares. And then I got in there out of the car park, went in and Sarah's like, Brad, there's been $20,000 donated. In the time I drove from home to go to dinner. And I remember spending that dinner with my mate. Just, I couldn't, I had to keep looking at my phone. I looked at, and I found my, it was on a GoFundMe and I found myself looking at every, everything. Like I'm like, i seen your name come yeah. up.
0: <laughs> I was oh, there. Oh,
1: Maggie P. Um, Pennington, right? She <laughs> yep. tried to hide who she actually <laughs> was but donated $2,500 yeah. out of her own money amongst all the other people. And, and it's things like that for me. I looked at it and I went, wow, there's these people that they believe in it, whether they've yeah. experienced it or they know people that do.
0: It touches people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, you know, having worked in the death and dying sector and I've worked with families just like yours, is sometimes you just want to hang on to something good that can come out of something just so hideously awful.
1: Mm, yeah, that You
0: can make a bit of difference by, yeah. you know, buddy's life isn't completely a waste.
1: For me, it was about by telling our story in the hospital of yeah. we didn't have any time with him. We had to visit him a few days later in the facility that wasn't very nice and we can give other families that time that we never had. That was one of the most common concerns
0: when we, I was first working in the funeral industry was how quickly we took those babies off people. And yeah. I remember um, a beautiful, really good friends of ours, their daughter lost hers at full term and they wanted to bring him home and bury him on the farm. And um, when they were going to, they had spent as much time as they did in the hospital. But when they came back to the farm, I said, I just want you to say, are you are you ready? And if you're not, and they took him back in for another couple of hours. And that, when they're ready then to Mm. surrender their precious baby to the funeral farewell, that was a really big moment of, it doesn't make it any easier in terms, doesn't make your pain any Mm. less, but it is honouring the fact that it's difficult to give up something you've created. So thanks for that. So do you reckon... Because you've actually faced one of the worst fears that parents can face. Has it changed your perspective as a dad? Y-
1: yes, not at the time, but I certainly I appreciate mortality a lot more than I think I did when we were younger. And and for me, it's a case of when, when you're thinking about that stuff and saying you, you get one shot, you're on this earth once, you get that childhood with your kids once. And when you, and and you can look around at the situation you're in and and you can whinge and you say this, this isn't for me, it's not working. Or you can just take the tools that you've got and you can take the life that you have, irrespective of money and family and friends and all the bullshit. Mm. And I think for me, I think about that a lot more now and I go, well, it's Sunday. How do I make today count? Mm. You know, I might get a couple of hundred of these while they're, while they're, while they're kids. How do we make today count? And, and if that's spending $3 on a bag of hot chips and going down the park, then that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I think it's changed me in that way. I think mm-hmm. about that stuff a lot more than I thought I would have.
0: Yeah. I had a, a an experience where I almost hemorrhaged to death when I had three little boys. And um, I was on the cusp, literally going down the golden tunnel. And, and afterwards, everything changed for me as a mother because <laughs> I nearly wasn't able to do it. And that, I think... It was a, a really wonderful gift, and um, I mean, I was a bit crazy and mad beforehand, but I just went to a new You? Why
1: <laughs> oh, that hard to believe? I know that. <laughs> no way.
0: I also was very competitive at basketball, and I remember playing basketball after that going, it's actually okay not to win. Like, I was such a fiercely competitive human, yeah. but that's my yeah. bloke side coming out partly. And I used to started to play for joy. Man, that was a big one. Challenges you're facing right now that sometimes may mean oh,
1: what do I do now? To be honest, I feel like we're in the best place we've ever been in. You know, like I know I, I speak from a place of privilege when I say this, but time, like for me, time is the challenge. You get a certain amount of time, and you get a certain amount of money, and normally you have to trade one for the other, and there's no right decision, you know, because. If you want your family to have everything, then mm. you've got to work. But the more you work, the less time you have to that's enjoy it. With it's them. one of
0: the biggest dilemmas for dads, it's, yeah?
1: It, yeah, yeah, it's impossible. So for me, that's my challenge. i So how
0: are you fixing it?
1: To be honest, I've made career decisions that give me more time, mm. you know, because if I was working for myself, I work, like work. <laughs> I go to sleep and I work, and it's not because I want to or I want to take away from my family, but that's just – who I am as a person. So I've, I work in a senior leadership role and I absolutely love what I do, but I do this kind of work and not entrepreneurial work.
0: For that reason. I have
1: that outlet within my job, but the reason I don't do it for myself is because I have a family. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so there's this common dilemma that I know a lot of dads who are highly pragmatic struggle with is quality time. How do I find enough of that? And when I've given dads the ideas of micro connections, yeah. which are the little bits that we can keep dropping into our kids' little hearts and souls, they suddenly go, Oh man, I can do more of that. Yeah. And that makes me not feel so bad that yeah. I'm not there all weekend or after school yeah. or... so um micros, they're the they're the I wink more and I laugh yeah. more and I ruffle yeah. her hair and I punch her arm or I I I read them that extra story some nights when I'm there. Yeah. So have you got some micro connections you do with your kids?
1: Yeah. I I think for me it's not something I, I do consciously, but if I'm there with them, there's that. it's that physical act of as a parent, this is so important, yeah. the physical act of because you're going to look at your phone, we're all way too attached to them. You, you, you physically put it down and you throw it away. Hide it. And I think when you do that, it says – something to you and it also says something to them and then you say get the witch's hats let's play soccer i think for me it's start there because you you can you can have a go of documenting all of the things that you're going to do but the reason most of us don't have a connection with our kids when we're at home is because we're we're looking outside of our house for entertainment yeah that's
0: it i i just want to throw one idea and i don't know if you've ever heard me talk about this one but i've noticed that sometimes particularly when you're a parent of a boy that's mm-hmm. one of those rooster kind of one that's always getting busted because he's just pushing every boundary, right? You might have been a little bit like that. Yeah. So when they come home, they don't they don't feel super loved because the school's rung and, you know, everything's a bit crap. And they've been given some consequences, which means I don't feel so good either. So I talk about this surprise bedroom attack. So what happens with that is it's after the lights have gone out, just mm-hmm. five or ten minutes. Is you race in in the dark and you leap on top of them and you you tickle the heck out of them or blow raspberries in their ear and you just absolutely and they work you work them over and then you, as you walk out if it's a dad possibly dropping a fart because what's happened is that kid's still busted but that kid's just had a big dose of significant you know positive neurochemicals from a parent and that means they're going to sleep a bit better even though they're still going to be in trouble the next day. But what's really funny is, um, you know, because it's been nearly 20 years that I was suggesting this for – I've had the dads who have done, like, triple flips, you know, a bit too spectacular and ploughed through the, the wall, and I've had another one dislocated his shoulder. Um, so I had to just say just it's a small yeah. fall on top. It's not the – you know,
1: WWE. No, that's <laughs> it.
0: So I uh, just noticed that um, – It shifts something. Mm. So sometimes it's, we don't have to have a big, serious conversation because we've, we've been doing it. We just have to connect in some way that, that means, yeah, we've got your back, even though you're a bit of a pain in the ass at the moment. Has there been a
1: significant moment you've gone, ah, bugger,
0: I could have done that better.
1: Oh, absolutely. Give us one. Oh, probably a couple of months ago, we're in our new house, you know, we put a lot of time, money and effort into buying it, I guess. So we're really protective of some some of the things around it, like the carpet downstairs, for example. And we don't tell me you got a white one. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no. It's not white carpet, thankfully. But yeah, like a uh, probably a couple of months ago, one of the boys came in, and it was Finn, and he was talking to me about something, and it just caught me off guard. But I was that I seen that he had his shoes on on the carpet, and I couldn't even hear the words coming out of his Ooh. mouth yeah. because I was yeah. I, I don't even know how because it was early in the morning, but I'd obviously – I was at my, was at yeah. my wit's end and, and I let him have it and yeah. it, it broke him, like legitimately broke him because yeah. I'd ignored what he said, I'd gone off at him about the carpet and then Sarah had to jump in and I had to go for a drive. Like I, I, I had to leave. So, yeah, that's an example of where so I've absolutely not dealt with something the right way. You
0: do realise that was triggered from your own childhood. That's actually what that was. Something happened very similar that just went boom. Hmm. And we lose our concept for that rational place. It's, it's
1: yeah, just heartbreaking. Yeah. And normally so, I'm okay. Normally I'm pretty softly spoken and I...
0: Was there a time you walked dirty feet over something and got yelled at?
1: You remember? Oh, I, <laughs> I had a childhood where I, I got more than yelled at, but <laughs> but yeah, I don't doubt that's where it's from.
0: So when we get triggered, this is this is a really big thing and I, you know, it's the power of the pause. If you can feel it happen in your body and you can feel, that's when we go, oh, just out of here, just move. Because what we know is when the amygdala gets fired up in boys and men, the next part of the body is usually, um, it is the body. Mm. So sometimes we will push, shove, hit, kick, or we could walk away, mm. literally walk away, just hang on. Kind of it's a break point, but it's the pause point. And it's not easy to do because that came really, really automatically. And I think the other part to it is that we need to let ourselves off the hook as well because there's all these other things. And that what we can do is get in a cycle of just focusing on what I'm doing wrong. You yeah. know, and that's a boy thing. How often do boys who get busted a lot, you know, mum comes in and she's a bit grumpy and she puts the shopping down and you go, what have I done wrong now? Yeah. You know, that <laughs> that ever,
1: yeah.
0: right, and then that becomes a defensive kind of unconscious thing that can happen as well. So,
1: yeah. the other thing that I think is is tough when you experience that is, it's not just about identifying that I've done something wrong. Any rational person knows, shit, I've just done the wrong thing. Mm. Um, but then, especially if your partner checks you on it, which rightfully yeah. so, I think it's not
0: easy, but it's still no, a, absolutely okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and. So th- there's a couple of things. One part is sometimes you need space to walk away and not that you would ever say, hey, don't follow that person, but don't follow that person. Sometimes you've got to give that person time to just nice. give them space to walk away. But then when they come back, I think the hardest thing for me is as 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 I was driving, I don't want to go home. There's a level of shame not in that not- as well that you go, I I don't want to face that music. That's not. It's not who I am. It's not who I want to be. That's that's not me. So you come back and and you do it and you apologise because yeah. that's the important thing, right? Like you've got to apologise to kids. They've Let's got touch
0: to. on that there because that's a really biggie for guys: the rupture and then the repair. Yep. So has that got easier for you to repair after a rupture than possibly oh, when you were younger?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that that takes years. You know, like Sarah always says to me. Brad, I want to get you in front of a counselor. And I've always said, no, I probably, I definitely need one, but you're like, there's nothing wrong with me. But then, you know, absolutely. That's not a rational reaction to someone wearing clogs on the carpet. So there is something wrong with me. There's absolutely something wrong with me, but I'm smarter than that. I'm more emotionally intelligent than that. I have better values than that. I can do better. I don't need someone to tell me that. So there's that. There's that shame aspect as well where I'm like, no, I don't need anyone to tell me. I'm going to do better. So I don't know what the right answer is, but, you know, you've sort of just got to recognise and, and apologise.
0: One of the big things that, you know, which is why I've been such a loud voice in this space, why we have to h- stop hitting, hurting and shaming little boys for making mistakes that are often biologically driven, is that their self-worth is something they give themselves from when they do good. So when they don't do good, and that's not just competition, it's how high up the tree I went or then we really attack ourselves. Yeah. You know, guys attack themselves and then anger is the big one, right? Because what they probably want to do is just crawl up in a hole and just sob like a normal human, but that's not conditioned in them to be that way. So the anger comes out first. And that's that's not easy, but Yeah, I agree with Sarah. I think a really good therapist would help get rid of some of that (laughs) anger, but I'm moving on. Now's your fess up, fabulous time. I want you to imagine you're stepping in with a swagger thinking, man, I nailed that just then. I got that so good. What is it? What's
1: that moment? I try not to judge things day by day. Like I try and play the long game. For me, the win is, let's say something that I got told the other day, Another kid in a public place being a little bit of a bastard, you know, that's what happens, that's what kids do, carrying on swearing and my boys say, we don't speak like that. And when the other kid said, well, I'm allowed to talk like that because my dad does, my kids said, well, I don't talk like that and my dad doesn't. As little as that is for oh me, um, God, for me, gold. yeah, for me hearing that, hearing Sarah play that back to me, I'm like, well, that's good because we don't talk like that. You know, we don't treat other people like that. So that's a win.
0: It's a really, really big win. Yeah. And it goes right back to your values.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: All right. So what is the one thing, Brad, that you want your boys to learn from you?
1: Just effort. Like, doesn't matter what you do. Like Sarah says all the time that I definitely have ADHD. <laughs> And that I master everything I do. And she teases me about it to no end. But um, I think the one thing I would want them to take away is that if you're going to do something, try your best. Give it a good crack. And don't be scared of failure. Like most people are so scared of failing at something that they won't enter a 100-meter sprint race, that they won't get in the pool at school. And it's all those things for me that it's that confidence to give things a go, that that'll set your social life up. It'll Help you identify what you're good at, and more importantly, it'll put you out of your comfort zone. Because if yeah. if you're never put out of your comfort zone, you you'll, you'll never achieve anything. Yeah, you know, exactly. you'll never put yourself out there for the rest of your life. So I think for me, it's it's I try hard at everything I do. So yeah. like, let's say we do football. Finn plays football. For me, the effort is well. I'm going to coach because I want you to see that I'm out on the field too. Yeah. And we'll try our best.
0: Not shouting from the sideline. Not lines. shouting
1: from the sideline. I'll shout from the field because <laughs> then I'm closer. <laughs> but, but it's that effort, I think. I, I want them to take that away and go, well, it doesn't matter how good I am at anything. I'm not the biggest. I'm not the strongest. I don't need to be.
0: If you could go back in time to the pre-22-year-old first-time dad, yeah. what advice would you give to Brad then before he became a dad?
1: I'd probably tell him to work more on relationships and find those people that, that, you know, generally when you're in your early 20s, there's still people that you've got to drop. That's just how life works. But I would probably tell him to put more effort into finding the right people then and dropping the right people then, you know, because you can change a person's environment. You can change, um, you know, how you interact with them. You can change all of those things, but you're not going to change their values very easily. So if you're hanging around people that they don't fit where you want to be, change your circle. I'm only now finding those people that have similar family orientated values to me.
0: So is there a part of you that could say to that, Brad, you know, mate, you're going to be a good enough dad?
1: Yeah, I think, I think he'd be happy. Like I was pretty, I was pretty lineal in my thinking And I I was conservative and I also didn't know how big the world was. Like, to be honest, at 22, I thought success was being a sergeant of police on $100,000 a year and, and maybe having a mortgage. And if I could afford one, a caravan one day, you know what I mean? Like I, I, that was my legitimately what I thought success was. And so, so I think that changes. I I probably would have also said, Hey, broaden your horizons a bit, buddy, like have a look at the world. Don't be so defined by what maybe your career advisor in school told you you could achieve based on your grades, because that's bullshit. Yeah. Just try really hard and find the right people and do whatever interests you. So good,
0: Brad. Thank you. Thanks for your time today.
1: That's all right. Thanks for having me,
0: Brad Kearns. You'll find him on Instagram as Dad Mum Official. Brad has so many insights to share. So many good ones. So here are three that you can add to your good enough dad checklist. Number one, for some dads, being a good enough dad doesn't come naturally. However, you can learn and improve and grow to become that good enough dad over time. Number two, put down the phone. There is no question that creating connection with your kids is important. Whether you've got one minute, five minutes, half an hour, put the phone down. It really matters when your kids know you're fully present. And number three, we'll all have moments we muck up badly. So if you've had one of those muck up moments, you know the big ones, remember after a rupture, we come back and repair. Yeah, it's not easy, but it's incredibly important. Repair the rupture. I'm Maggie Dent, and this is The Good Enough Dad. Follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts.